continue to look through Paul's letter to the first Thessalonians today. We're still in chapter 4 from where Floyd left off last week. Um, Specifically, we'll look at verses 9 through 12 this morning. Now, I don't know how many of you guys still listen to the radio. Every once in a while, I still listen to the radio. I know it's it's a dying trend, but I was listening to the radio the other day, and this phrase that's become kind of the catchphrase of our generation, of, of, of today's culture, um, came across. And it made me think, and it was, are you living your best life now? Are you living your best life? I hear it all the time, you know. You see someone at the beach and it's, hey, he's, they're living their best life. Or see someone, you know, traveling the world, oh, they're living their best life. Well, I don't know how many of you guys spend time thinking about what it means to live your best life or to live the good life, or that was when I was growing up, it was, you know, you live in the good life, and, and so I don't know how many of you think about that, but I want to think about that this morning as we look in this text. See, Floyd left off last week at verse 8, and although these two passages are definitely talking about different themes, I'd say that they're kind of two sides of the same coin. I'd say it's probably a coin that Paul would call how to live a life pleasing to God. So last week, if you remember, Paul laid out that our being set apart for the sake of God's kingdom, also known as sanctification, our being set apart, is the will of God, which he says includes the ability to refrain from sexual immorality. Now, this was just one example. It's not the totality of what it means to be set apart. But he gets his point across that living a life pleasing to God involves living a life that's set apart from that of the world. So last week's text particularly showed us what does it mean to live a life pleasing to God in our relationship to God. This week's text is going to take it one step further by showing us what a life pleasing to God looks like in how we relate to one another. So, both of these texts, and especially the one we'll look at today, focuses on this theme, and this is what I want to hit home this morning. The Christian life is a God-taught life. The Christian life is a God-taught life. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But with that in mind, let's jump in today's, into today's text, verses 9 through 12, of chapter 4 of Paul's letter to 1 Thessalonians. This is on page 836. I'll be reading it out of the Pew Bible. Paul writes, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you. Lord, that you continue to speak to us today through your word, through your spirit. Lord, it's in that vein we come to you right now with open hearts and minds to hear your word. Lord, build us up, equip us to be witnesses in boldness and in courage of your good news to this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it look like to live the good life, one that is pleasing to God? There's two things. I want to see in this text this morning in that regards. First, it's that 
the good life is a God-taught life, and second is what is the result of that life. So the good life is a God-taught life, second, what is the result of that life? So first we see here that a life pleasing to God comes through men and women who are God-taught. Now, I've used that phrase several times already. I'm sure you're wondering, what do I mean when I say, is, is God-taught, that we are God-taught? Well, let's look at our text and see how Paul explains it. He opens his text, he says, Now about your love for one another, or it's the word for brotherly love here, now about your brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. You see, this word here that we translate taught by God, is actually a word that Paul never uses ever again in the New Testament. He uses it only here in this letter. And some say that they think Paul made it up. It's just, it's just a made-up word. It's a mashup of these two words, one for God and one to teach. So again, we translate it taught by God, but in reality, when you translate it woodenly or roughly, it just says, and you are God-taught. You're, you're God-taught. It's this made-up, mashed-up word. And I think he does this not because he couldn't think of a word on how to talk about how, what does it look like to be taught by God, but because I think he's trying to make a point about what it looks like to be taught by God in this instance. See, he could have used another word. We, we look at 2 Timothy 3.16 about God, God's word being God-breathed. There's a different word for what does it mean that God's word is teaching us. There's different words for what does it mean that we're being taught by God through the life, through the example of Jesus. But here, he uses this word, and he makes this word up in order to make the point that it's less about divine communication and more about divine relationship. I want to say that again because this is important. It's less about divine communication and it's all about divine relationship. You see, Paul finished the last section in verse 8 by saying that those who disregard the believer's call to holiness disregards God who gives the Spirit. And then immediately in verse 9 here, he talks about not needing to give them human instruction about brotherly love since they already have this godly instruction. If I can make Paul's point in another way, our new life in Christ is a result not of us being good students of the Word and in that way learning how to be holy and loving, but it is through the relationship that we have as a result of the Spirit's indwelling within us. Of course, this includes times of studying the Word. Of course, it includes times of learning. But that's not the foundational means by which we learn to live more and more in the image of Jesus. You see, last week Floyd stressed the importance of being holy as a result of our faith in Christ, which is definitely important. Paul says in verse 3, this is the will of God. But scripture makes it clear that you cannot live a holy life apart from the work of Christ on the cross that results in his indwelling spirit. You see, on the one hand, you have Jesus' death that has forgiven you of your sinfulness, but it's not until we're filled with the Holy Spirit that we're regenerated, that we're renewed, that we actually can live lives that are free of sinfulness. You see, if Jesus just died on the cross, our ability to live this good life, this holy life, to, to what Floyd said last, year, or last week, be holy, we wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for 
the Spirit's indwelling in us. That's why Jesus in the Gospels, as he's heading to the cross, he says, it is important, it is good that I'm leaving because I'm about to send someone who's going to help you guys in ways that you can't imagine. And you're going to do things that are greater than what I've even done here. So in other words, you cannot love as you ought from, apart from the Spirit's softening of your heart and that supernatural guidance of God leading your every step. So to tie this into, into in, to tie last week's text into Paul's point in this week's text, you cannot live a life set apart for God, that's what we talked about last week, or love each other as we should, and that's in this week's text, if you are not God-taught, if you are not filled with His Spirit that empowers you, that motivates you, and that guides you into all truth and into all goodness. And this is where Paul's going in this morning's text. To live the good life, to live a life that's pleasing to God, is to live this God-taught life. Again, referring to this, ver- this word in verse 9, we see that, again, it's not so much divine communication, but it's about divine relationship established between believers and God. Hence, it is as those who have been born of God, whose hearts are in consequence filled by God's Spirit, that the Thessalonians, for their part, can no longer help but love. You see, they didn't need Paul's human instruction about this because they were filled with God's Spirit and could not help but love. He says, I don't need to tell you how to love because you're God-taught. You're filled with the Spirit. You are doing this naturally because of this new life that you have in your faith in Christ. Charles Wanamaker says it another way. He says, For Christians to be taught by God is then a sign of their participation in the age of salvation. You see, the early church knew that the kingdom of God was here now because of this supernatural, God-glorifying love that was evident in their lives. Their love and their lives were not worldly and they were not normal. You can read testimony after testimony in church history of people saying, man, when all else failed, when everyone turned their backs, there were the Christians. You know, when the plague hit in the Middle Ages, everyone fled except for the Christians who stayed to nurse wounds, to pray with the dying, to hug those, to hold hands of those who nobody wanted to be around. That is not natural love. That is not worldly love. That is God-taught love. That is love that comes from people who no longer are motivated and propelled in this world by natural affection, but by supernatural affection. And Paul makes this point. He says the love that they had for one another actually was going out everywhere. He says you have loved believers everywhere in all Macedonia, and it could only be explained through the supernatural love that is evident through those who are God-taught filled with God's Spirit. And this is important because this term, brotherly love, we know it as Philadelphia, good city, I'm from PA, good, good city, city of brotherly love. We know it. In that time, in Greek culture, was only in reference to those who were your actual blood. That was the only time, if you read any other Greek literature and you see this word, it was only in reference to those who were a part of your bloodline. And it wasn't until the early church that all of a sudden this idea of brotherly love actually started to mean those who were no longer your actual family. 
And that's important because we see here a shift from the natural love that comes for siblings, for parents, for all that. That's just kind of, you know, I have to love them because they're my blood. And this new brotherly love that no longer is bloodline, but is through the blood of Christ. That this new brotherly love that we have for one another is actually not because of our own blood, but is because of the blood of our Lord and Savior. And I think we see the same true today, that, that in, in a worldly sense, don't take this the wrong way, we should not love each other. In a natural sense, we are very different from one another. Social status, we are very different. Political views, we know we're different. Gender, lifestyle, point of our life, our careers, our jobs, everything about everyone in this room is different. From a natural, worldly standpoint, we have no reason to gather in this place, to come together, to love one another, to sing songs together, but it's no longer a natural thing that drives us to do so. Our brotherly love is no longer because of natural affection. It's no longer because we are cookie cutter and we look exactly the same. Instead, it's because of the blood of our Lord who unites us in Him, who is filled with the Spirit, and we come here, although different, unified for a greater cause, under a greater King, for a greater purpose than what this world has to offer. So hear my plea this morning as I say, do not try to be holy in your own strength, and do not try to love with the affection that comes from your heart. Because, again, within our own strength, naturally, in our sinful state, that won't happen. It will be impossible to love people. They're going to let you down. They're not going to live up to your standards. You're not going to be able to be holy. You're going to slip up. You're going to make mistakes. If you try to do this on your own, every morning will be an exercise in trying to, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do better today. And you'll go to bed thinking, wow, I'm a big failure. Wow, this is not going well. Man, I don't know what's wrong with me. I must be messed up. But the gospel says, yeah, we know you're messed up, but God did something for you. God fills you with the Spirit. God has forgiven you. The Spirit now leads you into all truth, into all goodness, and that's what allows you to live this life. So don't do this on your own. Instead, learn to listen and be led by God's Spirit that empowers you, that strengthens you in all circumstances, for it is those living God-taught lives that change the world. Men and women who lead God-taught lives will live lives pleasing to God but they will also live lives that result in supernatural, attractive, and compassionate love that will turn this world upside down as a sign that God's rule and reign is happening here and now. And that's where Paul goes in this text. He says, it's so good that you're God-taught because it is leading to this love that's incredible. And he lays out the next point that I want to make this morning, which is that brotherly love is the result of this God-taught life. It's not something we add to our lives. It's not something that we have to intentionally do. If we are filled with God's Spirit, this affection for each other, this affection for the world, will come naturally. See, Paul continues in verse, verses 10 and following that he has heard the great testimony that they've already been loving each other, that all the believers in Macedonia have, have, made, um, have witnessed this, but he commands them to do it more and more, and he does so by telling them to do several things. First, he says, live a quiet life. Second, he says, mind your own affairs. 
And 30 says, work with your hands. I don't know about you, but if I were making a list about three ways to show brotherly love to each other, this would not be my list. Paul says, be quiet, mind your business, work with your hands. It's interesting. I think we need a little bit more context here to understand why Paul uses those three examples of how to show brotherly love. If you remember, Floyd said this way back when we first were getting into this letter months ago, but this letter is being written to a church who is being heavily persecuted for their faith, but is really doing a good job persevering. They're really doing a good job hanging in there. And you remember all of chapter 1 is just Paul saying, man, you guys are the, you have set the bar so high. You are the example. And the rest of his letter is, so now continue to do that. You know, don't let that go to your heads. Don't pat yourselves on the back and say, we've done it. We're all done. He says, you're doing a great job. Continue down that path. Well, at the time, there were many who, while experiencing persecution, were being outspoken and confrontational in their defense of their life. You know, they're saying, why would you do that? Why would you, be a, why would you follow Jesus? Why would you give up your, uh, your Jewish ways? Why would you give up your pagan ways and do this? And instead of loving them, instead of explaining them well, they were being outwardly confrontational. They were being outwardly outspoken about it to the point where they were causing contention, they were causing strife, they were causing division so that the church was becoming something that was not attractive, something that was becoming not a safe place for people to come, but was a place where, well, there's all the people who will, who will fight you for their faith. There's all the people who will, who will die just standing for what they believe and they don't want to hear anything that you have to say. And so this idea of living a quiet life and minding your own affairs is, this, is a response to a call to live a peaceable and a well-mannered life. It's to not be given over to strife. It's not to give to contention or division. But it's kind of to lay low and not incur, incur more opposition than they were already incurring. Now I think we can probably take a minute here and think about people today who tend to be like this, right? If you don't agree with them, if you don't listen to them, if they have different views than you, they tend to make a big scene about it. They tend to be really confrontational. They tend to divide instead of love, right? You know, instead of having a nice, quiet discussion about, well, this is what I believe, this is what I believe, and let's talk about why we can agree to disagree. Instead, they fight you to death and send you packing, saying, and I'll never talk to you ever again. There's people like that all over the world. And Paul's call here is, hey, believers in the church, you should not be like that. It's important to have convictions. It's important to stand up for what you believe. But it's just as important to do so in a loving way as to not cause division and to make the church look like an unattractive place. And, it, and we can sit here and say, well, is it any wonder that people in that position kind of draw opposition to themselves. And that's kind of Paul's point here is, you're being persecuted, you're being opposed. If you stop doing this one thing, you'll actually see that a lot of the opposition goes away. It's important for us as the church, those who are this, these God-taught people, the Spirit-filled people, to live away as to avoid further opposition that comes up from stirring up controversies and opposition and division in this world. I like how Matthew Henry says it. He says, Those who are busybodies, meddling in other men's matters, 
generally have but little quiet in their own minds and cause great disturbances among their neighbors. And he continues, Note it is a great ornament to religion when those who believe it are meek and quiet spirits, they're diligent to do their own business, and, they're, and not be busybodies in other men's matters. So as believers, it's important to not stir up strife or contention with the world around us, but to show them this brotherly love by serving them and by being peaceable and gracious in all things. And this is linked to Paul's final command here, which is to work with their hands. Now, if you've been here and we've been going through this letter, there should be something that kind of puts a little exclamation point in your head, right? It it jostles your memory because all through chapter 1, all through chapter 2, Paul has been laying out, I've loved you guys so much that I actually worked with my hands day and night as to not be a burden to you. And here his command is just follow my example. You say, okay, well that seems pretty, pretty straightforward. But let me say it another way. Our witness is diminished by contention and division just as much as it's diminished when believers become a burden or a drain on the community. Think about it. We're called back in Genesis 12. God's talking to Abraham. At this point he's Abram, but he's talking to Abram. And he's saying, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to bless you in order for you to be a blessing. Well, we are still Abraham's people. We are still the people of God in that regards. We are blessed to be a blessing. And Paul's point here is, you cannot be a blessing to the community if you are being a drain on the community. If the church is going to the community and saying, hey, we're in desperate need of of money, we're in desperate need of support, we're in desperate need, we need you guys to focus on us, we need you to help us, we need you to help us out in this, that, or the other way, we are actually not being a blessing to others. Now let's take it individually. As individuals in the church, if we're going out in the community and being a drain on the community and not a blessing, we become a burden to people and we actually don't show the brotherly love that Paul is talking about here. It's hard to be a blessing to the community when the church is called to serve sacrificially, to love sacrificially, to give without expecting anything in return if God's people are going out and being a burden and being a drain on that community. So Paul's point here is simply this. God taught believers show the deep, unconditional love of God to the world as they live lives that avoid unnecessary contention and division, but as they mind their own affairs well, and as they work hard and serve sacrificially in order to be a blessing and not a burden to their community. So we have here, you are called to be God-taught, to be filled with the Spirit. That means you will naturally be showing brotherly love. Here are a couple examples of what it means to show brotherly love. Don't cause division. Don't cause contention. Do your own work well. Serve yourself well. Work hard for yourself so that you can bless the community. But although there's a lot of application in this text, I think the most important thing for us to take away as we wrap up here, again, is that foundational point. The application is great, but it's the foundation here that Paul's trying to make, which is that the good life, that Christian life, is a God-taught life. 
Again, last week's passage in conjunction with the passage we looked at today shows us what a pleasing life to God looks like in our relationship to Him and our relationship to each other. But Paul's message here is not a moralistic set of rules. It's not new laws to be followed. But again, is hinged on verses 8 and 9 that show us that a pleasing life to God in these two spheres is only a result of being spirit-filled and subsequently God-taught. I'll reiterate it again. We are, we are set apart as holy to the Lord not because we do holy things, but because we are holy as a result of God's work on our behalf. You are only holy because Jesus died on the cross, bearing all your sin and shame, and then placed on you His righteousness and filled you with His Spirit. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite texts, when he says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our holiness is not contingent on us doing holy things. Our holiness is contingent on the Lord looking down and seeing Christ's righteousness in us. And then, through God's Spirit in us, the ability to now live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. The holy things we are called to do are a response and a result to this new status placed on us, not a requirement for it. Similarly, we are able to show brotherly love to each other and to this world when we are led, when we're empowered by God's Spirit within us. Again, in your own strength, in your own affections, it will be severely difficult to love people, whether believer or non-believer. But when you are God-taught, you will learn to serve, to love people out of God's heart of deep compassion and a longing for a people who know Him, who love Him, and worship Him. God is not interested in having a reformed people, you know, people who just clean up their act. He wants renewed people who are regenerated by His Spirit. He doesn't want you to be reformed. He wants you to be renewed. He wants you to be regenerated. I don't think I can go wrong by ending my sermon with a Charles Spurgeon quote. So I'm going to do it. Regeneration is not a change of the old nature, but an introduction of a new nature. I'm going to say it again because Spurgeon is way better than me at saying all this. Regeneration is not a change of the old nature, but an introduction of a new nature. That's what it means to be God taught, that's what it means to be spirit filled. It's not you just reforming your ways, trying to be a little bit better, trying to do a couple good holy things today. You know, it's, it's allowing the Spirit to completely regenerate, renew, create in you a new nature so that when it comes to brotherly love, we can look at each other and say, I don't need to give you any humanly advice because you have the God-taught advice. You are taught By God, you are led by His Spirit, and this is becoming your natural new identity. So if you're seeking to live a life pleasing to God, take heart that you do not have to do that under your own strength or your own volition, but you do so as a result of God's work and power within you. You are a new creation whose nature is now unified with Jesus, our brother. So lean on Him, trust Him, Grow closer to him, and you will learn to live a God-taught life that will turn this world upside down for the sake of God's kingdom.
Let's pray.